Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. Okay, so I have actually pressed record this time. <laughs> oh my gosh, we just recorded for about, well, what I thought was recording for about 10 minutes, but I forgot to press the record button. Do you want to know something funny? Absolutely. <laughs> the reason I knew that we weren't recording was because I reached over for my drink and it wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> and then I noticed the recording button wasn't <laughs> wasn't lit. <laughs> so here we are. Greetings and welcome to Follow the Leader. That's spelled stop laughing. <laughs> I like the thing your voice is doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> <clears throat> what a great day to record. Hello, and welcome to Follow the Leader. That's spelled L-I-E-D-E-R. With me, your host, Mandy madrid Sikich. If you have been tagging along on this wild and wacky leader journey with me, I salute you and thank you from the bottom of my leader-loving heart. But also, please rate, review, subscribe, favorite, download, do all of the things to show this podcast some good old-fashioned love. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, you know where to go. Also, you can follow me on Instagram, at Madrikich. That's spelled M-A-D-R-I-K-I-C-H. Here at Follow the Leader, we are really just counting on word of mouth right now to spread this podcast around the globe. So please share our podcast with anyone you think might be interested. And above all, remember, if you like what we're doing, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because any publicity is good publicity. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tyler Reese as my guest co-host. Hi, Tyler, and thanks for being here today. Hello, everybody. So we have a bit of a different format than usual today. Tyler, can you fill us in on why we are here and what we are talking about? Certainly. We are going to discuss the topic of my doctoral dissertation work, which focuses on, obviously, leader, but more importantly, the the intersection of sexuality and gender, um, and more specifically, Schumann's Frauenliebe und Leben. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, a composer other than Schubert, so let there be rejoicing among the people. This past year, Tyler and I collaborated for his final DMA recital and prepared Robert Schumann's song cycle, Frauenliebe und Leben, which which translates to a woman's life and love. Poetry written by, well, I'm not going to get this right, Adelbert von Schamiso. Hey, yeah, I think I got it, actually. Bingo. Uh, disclaimer, this will be a bit more of an academic episode than usual and might be particularly suited for some of our more seasoned leader lovers out there. But even if you are new, you just might find this fascinating. So by all means, keep listening as we dive in. Tyler, what is strange about you working on this particular cycle? Well, as you might have gathered from the title, it was originally... Um, intended for for women. The poetry was written from the first-person perspective uh, of a traditional 19th century woman and her typical life of the time, and basically the, the, the story of her falling in love and uh, experiencing all of the things you do. You know, you, you have the engagement and the wedding and having children, and um, so, yeah, this, this is always 
basically been performed by women exclusively up until, uh, you know, recent years, which we'll discuss probably later. Right. So when did you know that you wanted to take this concept and write about it as your DMA dissertation? Also, side note for anyone who doesn't know, a DMA is a doctorate of musical arts. Yeah, so I I think this topic has kind of been on my mind for a while now. I mean, it's, it's sort of a a thing that happens in the in the classical singer community is to always talk about these um, cycles as specific staples for certain voice types or or genders, and it's unfortunate because you know I've been going to so many recitals s- since I started singing, and you always hear this performed by mezzo sopranos and some sopranos. Uh, and it's just, it's stunning music, really. Uh, and I've always loved it. And so, you know, I questioned it over the years. And you, you always get that resistance from f- from your uh, teachers and your coaches and more, a lot of teachers from the older generation in particular who are who are very much about holding strong to the traditions and, and all that kind of stuff. Totally. Could you tell us about how you ran across Frauenliebe? Sure, yeah. So... I went to college in a little little tiny town in northeastern Iowa, uh, Luther College, and there was a music store in town, and it was very, very tiny, so like minimal things you could do. We had a couple things that we would go out and do as, you know, little college kids do to have fun in was the middle of nowhere. Was one of the things to do, go to the music <laughs> it store? It really was, yeah. So we would go rummage, <laughs> through, rummage through the sale racks in the back of the music store, and, you know, I had... I had purchased a lot of scores there, and most of the time, I didn't even know what they were. If if they looked like they were in the right range, I probably bought them if they were on sale, and then I would go back and sift through things and stuff. But one time, I had purchased a score that was specifically um, Schumann's Frauenliebe und Leben, and I had a friend at the time who was in my dorm room, and she goes, well, why did you buy that? Like, you're never going to be able to sing that. You know it's only for a woman, right? And I was like, well, actually, I have no idea. I didn't know anything about German or leader at the time, and I'd never heard of it. But yeah, came to find out that it wasn't uh, written for for men or my voice type, and that there was basically a restriction barring me from ever singing that music. Right. So in preparing for this episode, I read your thesis for the second time. Give me a sticker. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> I'm going to read a few of those excerpts throughout the episode, and I found your intro to be particularly to the point and just sort of gives us a good idea of where we are heading in our discussion um, from here on out. So I'm, I'm going to read that now. This is from your thesis introduction. The paper begins with an historical analysis of gender roles during the early 19th century. More detailed accounts of the gay rights movement and the moral purity movement shed light on the gendered performance practices of the leader repertoire. Ultimately, I use this history to consider alternative perspectives for performers who wish to engage with music that has traditionally been off limits to them because of gender or sexuality. End quote. Um, so I think that's a really succinct, concise way of kind of showing us where we're heading and, and really brings us to that idea of gendered cycles or songs as you ran across when you <laughs> bought the Frauenliebe score. Um, so gendered cycles or songs are those in which the text specifically indicates that they are sung by a particular gender. So can you talk a bit about about that and how traditional performance practices have accommodated for gender bending or not. And gender bending is when a man sings a song specifically written for a woman or vice versa. Yeah, so I mean, I think that actually leader is one of the genres that, that we encounter gendered music probably more frequently in. Uh, I think just because of the nature of the German language and also the style of the time and the evolution of the song cycle like that was just what the composers were writing and they're really really common so i mean the famous ones schubert um winterreise die schöne müllerin um schwanengesang uh schumann wrote dichterliebe as well which is and, and most of these are are gendered toward the male singer and uh well 
specifically the heterosexual male protagonist. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, it, this is really a genre where we encounter this rather frequently. Um, but it's not necessarily a new concept to gender bend with these things. Right. Um, uh, in in a, a really great example would be the famous German-American soprano Lotte Lehmann, um, who actually retired here in Santa Barbara um, in her later years. But she was singing Schubert's Winterreise, I think, back in the, the late 20s and early 30s, which is, you know, it was mm. a pretty novel concept at, at the time, I think, to be just out and performing these. And she, I think, is the first woman to have recorded the full cycle. Oh, um, I didn't know that she was the first. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, she is. So it's been happening. Yeah. But well, I'm sure... Well, also, sorry to cut, cut in here. Um, I know... I don't know if I realized this until I read your thesis. I think maybe it had been tucked somewhere in a dark corner of my mind. But when uh, Frauen Liebe was performed, one of the f very first performances of it was actually by a baritone. It was. Uh, Julius Stockhausen, right? Mm -hmm. With Clara Schumann at the piano, um, which is really cool because she was such a proponent of her husband's works, of Robert Schumann's works, that for her to be playing with a baritone singing this, you know, <laughs> work that was for a female and singer. And this was within 20 or 30 years of, of the cycle being written. Right. This was like 1860s, we're talking. So right. not even that, I mean, not even that far after, after Schumann had passed away. Right. Well, it just, I, I found that really enlightening to think, actually, this is, this is okay. This is something that, that Clark was saying was an okay thing to do by participating in, and, and that's not something to take lightly. No, it's not. And I think, you know, we'll get into the discussion of why I think that, that, that kind of moved away from being yes. all right. Actually, this is the perfect place to do that because, you know, it has happened more often that women have been allowed to sing men's Correct. cycles, but men have not been allowed to gender bend in the other direction. So there seem to kind of be some arbitrary, like unspoken rules about this. There is true. And I want to comment on what you just said too, because I think it's really important. I think that I, I mentioned earlier that there are these restrictions sort of placed on the mm -hmm. repertoire traditionally and like yeah. teachers not allowing their male students to sing Frauenliebe and vice versa and all this yeah. stuff. But I think what you just said is really important that they aren't allowed to, but I think the more important, uh, the more important way to phrase that here is that a lot of men don't allow themselves to perform this cycle. Mm. And that goes into the historical breakdown of, mm. of of why and these movements that are kind of associated with with um, gender and sexuality s shortly after um, that period we were just talking about the yeah. late 1860s. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So this whole thing is it is a bit complicated and might take a little bit of time to unravel, but I think it's a worthy discussion to have. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so um, can we can you sort of talk a bit? You have a really large section in your thesis about what was going on in sort of German home life in that sort of Biedermeier society that was set up post-Napoleon. What was going on in the home life and why? Yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating topic. There are tons of books about this already. I mean, like, this was not novel research by any means, but it is mm -hmm. important uh, to kind of set set the foundation of... Well, <laughs> it's not novel research, but I don't think many... I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word many, but I don't think as many musicians as should uh, be doing this actually dive this deep into the culture and society, like what was surrounding the music of the time, the poetry, the, the, yeah, the whole background is really, really important to take into consideration to have a completely informed understanding of the work and a completely informed performance. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's just, there's so much out there that I just remember when I was doing all this research being totally overwhelmed with the amount of literature that that has to do with this topic. But that being said, we'll, we'll give you the, the, the brief rundown yeah, yeah, brief. of it because it's really fascinating stuff. We could talk for hours about it. But I think it, it all started with the end of the Napoleonic Wars around 1815 and the Congress of Vienna, which happened, which basically restructured Europe 
and all these governments that were allied and, and working against Napoleon uh, turned toward each other and tried to restructure their governments and basically reorganize themselves after the catastrophes <laughs> of the right. Napoleonic War. Um, so in Germany in particular, everything kind of turned inward to uh, like a conservative, building a stable government again, and that also reflected itself in the home life mm-hmm. and kind of structure that you would expect of, of a traditional, like biblically centered household, I think is a good way to describe it. Like right. traditional gender roles, meaning women were the mothers and the daughters and the sisters to the men. And the men were the, the breadwinners who were mm-hmm. out working and getting the, the better educations and all this sort of thing, right? Um, which, which sets the tone for sort of how life was back then for 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 women and mm-hmm. ultimately how they are portrayed through this song cycle in particular right so there was this understanding that if we don't want what just happened to happen again we better make sure that our homes our governments are structured in this way that the the male is the one who's out being the the strong they were, it was seen as a stronger sex yeah. and so more weight more responsibility more of the leadership all of that fell to him and that was in order to keep a disaster a catastrophe from happening in the world like at large but yeah totally and and also because of everything that these people experienced in the years leading up to the end of the wars they they turned to this sort of almost you want to call it boring these days like (laughs) sort of lifestyle like even the the furnishings were sort of blasé not like what came before that where everything was really yeah yeah exactly decorated to the max and pomp Mm. and circumstance you think of ornamentation yeah exactly exactly and so to kind of counteract what they had experienced Mm. and get away from all the horrifying things of you know, of being in a war-torn country, they turn towards the solace of being an internal sort of home life-centered community. Simple, yeah, really simple home life. And and women had a specific role in order to maintain that, and that was to be at home, taking care of the kids, making sure the home was running smoothly. And it was seen as a sort of, pride if the home was running smoothly if the, the oh, father had his place the mother had her place and um and the kids had their place and boys were offered education that then would lead to them becoming leaders and working the government and women were offered usually a lesser kind of education yeah, i mean they they were given an education but even just where sometimes was totally different well, like a lot of times their fathers were the ones who were giving right. them the education and i remember reading uh, you wrote in your thesis how women the only things they were allowed to read were <laughs> the bible and sermons and approved cookbooks <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is too much. The horror, the horror. So um, being that this was the case, when you had composers taking texts and then writing songs specifically for men, they were usually vigorous, filled with energy, and that sort of, I don't want to say machismo, but yeah, you know, they embodied kind of that masculine that way. Right. Um, and in contrast, women's songs were usually weaker or they had a slower tempo softer dynamic markings um and they were just not as vigorous as befits the quote-unquote weaker sex and i remember in your thesis you specifically contrasted schubert's song der schiffer which we covered a few episodes back Um, it's a robust account of a man's life on the sea you contrasted that with das mädchen which is for a woman and is indeed far more delicate so um, as time went on, women then did begin to join the workforce, right? Yeah. And men felt insecure about their place in society. So this insecurity was then further compounded by the rise of the homosexual society. And you wrote specifically about its rise in Berlin. So can you talk a bit about that and why it's pertinent to what we are talking about here? Sure. Yeah. I think what you just said is absolutely right on with the Industrial Revolution happening kind of simultaneously to all of this, there were a lot more jobs 
and therefore women were finally able to get out and fill some of those vacancies and to be in the workplace and outside of the home for the first time and that definitely threatened a lot of a lot of men who felt like their jobs were being taken sort of unjustly um but yeah the, the <laughs> this is an interesting topic because it was a lot that i learned while i was writing this paper uh, i think sort of the main arguments that i ended up writing about i learned during the research portion like i knew that i wanted wow. to 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 argue that men should sing this cycle but mm -hmm. i didn't know that there was a real historic component and argument to that mm -hmm. What a cool thing as you're going to write about a dissertation that you realize there's something there huge something actually here to write really about. There was really substantial. And I yeah. remember talking to my advisor uh, at the time and she was like, D did you know this when you when you came to me with this topic? I was like, I actually didn't. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Like, I think the crux of my argument I found while I was writing the paper. So The leader gods were looking kindly upon <laughs> they you. They were. <laughs> But yeah, Berlin was a fascinating time, uh, pl fascinating place during this time period. Um, there was just a lot of really interesting things happening. And without going into too much detail, uh, I'll give you the, the basics. I think they were basically the, f they, s they created an atmosphere and a community that was the foundation of what has since turned into the modern LGBTQ plus movement. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a famous lawyer who kind of is the is the first person to have a public coming out story, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, okay. and he he was at a an association of German jurists, and he, amidst all of this legal talk and jar jargon and trying to restructure the German states, he gets up to the podium and starts talking about how, uh, you know, <laughs> the homosexuals and he, he actually called them urnings mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to heterosexuals whom he called dionings mm -hmm. but how they how they were an an innate sort of inborn uh sexuality mm -hmm. so they, they weren't necessarily morally deformed like like the right. church was presenting homosexuals uh, and has been for mm -hmm. a very long time but instead this is one of the first more you know, public arguments of homosexuality being an innate part of someone mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to an, a, a trait that you choose or something like that. Right. So, I mean, this is the culture that we're talking about. And he, he had publications. He started writing these anonymous uh, publications that got a lot of attention in, in the papers of the time. I mean, a lot of, a lot of negative attention, obviously, but also a lot of positive attention. Mm -hmm. And he sort of sparked something within the uh, homosexual community because now he's got all these um, sort of underground underground gays coming yeah. out <laughs> and writing him and you know they're starting to to realize that there are more people out there that mm -hmm. that you know think this way and that know that they're not sort of horrible people uh, that, that they morally were just born corrupt. this way yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah morally corrupt yeah, is a good way of putting that felt safe to come out finally you know, yeah were, so and, and be themselves yeah and and meanwhile i think berlin is a great place to to discuss this because they they had a gay scene i think long mm. before a lot of major cities did um and they had bars that were known as being the sort of like gay bars of the time right. <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily call it that but yeah uh there were police raids um to kind of stop this mm. um and i think there's one famous one in Seeger's restaurant in mm. berlin um and and there were some people who were arrested because they sent some officers undercover into this bar mm. and they saw some you know things that they thought were horrifying like right. uh men dressed as women and you know Right. People rubbing up on each other that shouldn't have been <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. I mean, nothing nothing terribly illegal, like right. they didn't see any illicit right. acts in public. So that was interesting. But it mm -hmm. um, it sort of set a precedent for the future of the policing of Berlin. I think after that, the police chief, um, who I'll just refer to as Hülesem, mm -hmm. because he's got a very long name that I cannot remember off the top of my head. <laughs> um he he just he decided that instead of wasting time and money and energy trying to mm -hmm. police the city of berlin for homosexual activity mm -hmm. they were just going to sort of let it slide unless there were like extreme cases of things mm -hmm. like they weren't going to go out searching for anything mm -hmm. uh 
obviously it was still illegal in Germany or, you know, what would be Germany today mm-hmm. in the German Confederation mm-hmm. to specifically for men to have sexual intercourse or activity mm-hmm. with other men, right. specifically men. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was illegal at the time, but he he wasn't going to let that happen in public, I don't think. Right. But he wasn't going to go out. The police weren't going to go out into these bars mm-hmm. and actively try and chase people down right. and put them away. And in fact, it sort of allowed this underground community to to be brought up mm-hmm. into the light. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how it evolved, too, because he would actually bring these famous um, researchers in, scientific researchers right, of the right. time, psychologists and he whatnot. He said Albert Mole was one of them, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. They, he brought them, and he would bring them to some of the gay bars, right. and he would take them to drag <laughs> balls and, like, th- these crazy things. And it's 1860, 1870 yeah. Berlin. <laughs> it's not, like, modern-day right, city. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so it's 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 a city that had a really rich culture that kind of was allowed to flourish mm-hmm. partially, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I, I don't right. want to say that it, they were supporting it full-fledged, right. but they were kind of allowing it to flourish. Um, I think <clears throat> that actually, though, brings up the issue of because it was allowed to flourish on some level, I think the heterosexual men who perceive that they might be threatened by a man dressing up as a woman and kind of breaking down what were the traditional gender roles and and kind of like muddying that line of what was allowed and what wasn't and who should do what and who shouldn't. Yeah. It became an issue of, oh, we better make sure that men are manly. Yeah. And they don't do anything that makes them appear effeminate or... That right there is the crux of my argument because, yeah, I mean, not only were these... I will say displaced male workers upset about losing their jobs to women, but the church had something to worry about too. And that was traditional gender roles, women being submissive to men and, and everything we just talked about, the the men dressing as women and kissing each other and this kind of stuff. It blurred those gender lines to a point that the church had to intervene and mm, and that's right. that's what I, I didn't call it the moral purity movement. It was from one mm-hmm. from an author in my paper, uh, John Fout. I mm-hmm, think believe mm-hmm. I believe he he called it the moral purity movement. <clears throat> that and that's what it was kind of the the response to this flourishing of the gay culture and right. the women entering the workplace and all of that. Right. So as heterosexual men became a bit more aggressive in perpetuating the myth of male sexual dominance in the workplace. Um, we had this sort of idea of what was allowed and what wasn't come up. And there were a couple of um, things I wanted to read, um, some quotes in your dissertation, because I think that they just, they're just what we need at this moment. Um, So this excerpt is actually from, uh, written by the editor of the German League in the Struggle Against Women's Emancipation. Um, He said, we want to preserve the division of labor of the sexes as it has developed historically in the culture, given that it has been a blessing to the nation as a whole. The woman should reserve the household and the family as her sphere of activity, and the woman's employment outside of the home should only be seen as an exception or an economic necessity and should be made superfluous, if at all possible. Sorry, I shouldn't have laughed, but... (laughs) just what <laughs> it's, it's just, they're crazy words to read aren't they and then he goes on to say the man should not have to experience any interference from women in his profession and in his work in the community and for the state i i remember when i first read that i i just had to stop for a second mm-hmm. because it was such an aha moment it sums up so well these these barriers that women are still running into day in, day out. I mean, (laughs) things that I have experienced on a personal level day in, day out. And they framed it not as male insecurity, but as a crisis of morality is what you say. They frame it as that crisis of morality. So if you don't adhere to this, you are immoral. Mm -hmm. If you don't fit within these two boxes, then then you're basically (laughs) against the will of God. You go on in your dissertation to say, 
As Fout argues, the vast majority of men who made up the type of men's groups represented in the moral purity movement came from traditionally male-dominated professions, such as pastors, government officials, military officers, and businessmen. Some of these occupations were already under siege by women and feminists, while other professions represented the last all-male bastions. In their quest to keep men on top, both literally and figuratively, they had to do everything in their power to uphold the myth of male sexual dominance and their proper role in the workplace. I mean, yeah, there it is. <laughs> so this, this is the issue that we come up when we contemplate why aren't men singing female roles or why aren't men allowed to like pink or why can't men cry yeah. it's i mean it goes way way back and it, it doesn't just go back to this no. issue it goes even further back of course but but i mean i mean this is the culture that we just discussed a little while ago about schumann's own wife sitting at the piano and a baritone singing this song which which describes a woman falling in love with a man and having children and, you know, all these incredibly what we would think of as traditionally feminine things. You know, he stood up there and sang them and it was fine. And then something happened and, and no one, no men that I can even th think of or that I've read about, I can't find any other examples until 2004 mm -hmm. that, another, that another man publicly sang or recorded these songs. Right. Why? The reason why we should even address that why um, you address uh, in your dissertation, you, you go on to say, in, the li in light of the aforementioned historical background, I return to the subject in question, Schumann's Frauenliebe und Leben. In fact, I believe that the arguments behind breaking traditional performance practices for this cycle are rooted in the very historical context previously discussed, particularly as it regards the evolution of gender and sexuality against all odds. So why is this important? Why should we consider, it, consider this history? And then after that consideration, why should we break the rules and do what isn't done? Why should we think outside the box here? Well, my hypothesis is that this culture of th that was brought on by the moral purity movement basically established a culture of homophobia, mm -hmm. not only in Germany. I mean, this stuff was happening all across the West, all across Western society. Um, and, and still is today. I mean, these are really deep-rooted trenches that, that run throughout, you know, all, all veins of society today. And I think that, in particular, it, was, it, it still is hard for men to want to feminize themselves in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I mean, really, all sorts of men, uh, particularly heterosexual men, because they don't want to be seen as feminine or possibly any any sort of homosexual leaning tendencies right. or anything like yeah. that but but even men who know that they're gay mm -hmm. or bisexual or, or any anything on the spectrum you know right. th they have a, a hard time because they don't feel like they can be themselves because of these um, gender roles and expectations that are put on them from a very early age yes. and obviously i think everyone can see where this is going like if you're going to stand up on a stage in front of an audience as a man and sing a song that was written for women and about women's issues, that feminizes you in a way that that uh, that you can't really come back from if you're <laughs> if you're living in this time period where the church right. is actively With that cultural context. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and and I think that this. It's my opinion that this probably had a huge impact as to why men didn't perform the song cycle after Stockhausen yeah, and why they still don't perform the cycle today. You know, I think this kind of boils down to by saying that I don't want to be seen as feminine or as a woman. Mm -hmm. That's saying that there's something intrinsically wrong with being female. Right. And I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but... As a gender-fluid individual, I have often struggled with 
when my feminine side wants to come out, I punch it down and I squash it because I feel like there's something wrong with it. Yeah. There's something about that that I shouldn't want to own. And this kind of discussion, I think, is so important um, for us to be having, like, <laughs> on the ground level with friends, family, students, teachers, to sort of change this kind of paradigm. And if we can have these discussions in our homes with our friends and mm -hmm. sort of change this, this paradigm to where women aren't weaker, but no, the women in, in our lives, we're lifting them up, we're making them stronger, then who wouldn't want to be like a woman? Who wouldn't want to be a pillar of, you know, the pillar of strength that any number of, of women in the world who are doing incredible <laughs> things, um, then I feel like if we, ha as a culture, as a society, if we have that sort of paradigm shift, then we're going to have greater ability to see each other as humans. A, a man can sing something for a woman and a woman can sing something for a man. It doesn't matter because we're all yeah, th humans. Th that's not the point of my paper. And I want to make that clear too, because mm. I set out to do this because I love Schumann's music, not mm. because I think that, uh, you know, a man has to have, ha has, has to be in charge of these words at some point. That's that's not the point at all. It's 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 not that. It's it's really that anyone should be able to perform something that they relate to, right. And that they like. And I think we'll talk about this more a little bit later mm -hmm. too. But yeah i mean it, it doesn't matter the gender or the sexuality is the point of this paper right <laughs> i'm right. using this as a specific example because it relates to me yes yeah yes absolutely um to quote you again <laughs> to quote dr tyler reese <laughs> um from your thesis you say Ultimately, I use this history to consider alternative perspectives for performers who wish to engage with music that has traditionally been off limits to them because of gender or sexuality. To, demonst to demonstrate this concept, I introduce the Frauenliebe protagonist to a variety of alternative perspectives, including a historical per performance by a female and, inversely, a 21st century gay male. The last section of the paper is an in-depth, dramatic integration of the gay male perspective into the Frauenliebe protagonist. I pose potential scenarios to consider for the gay male performer when interpreting Schumann's cycle, as well as changes to the text and music to fit his alternative perspective. Ultimately, the goal of this paper is to remove unnecessary restrictions from modern performance practice in order to broaden the leader repertoire for young singers, particularly those of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, and, and that brings me to the question, why do we perform music? Or why do you, as an audience member, go to a concert? Or why do you listen to music in the first place? It's not because, it's, it's, it's definitely not so you can tell someone that they shouldn't be singing something. Or that they shouldn't be saying something. Uh, I'd hope that's not why you're going to concerts. I mean, there are definitely people in the audience who do <laughs> say those things and think those things. Yeah, but, I'm sure. But you're right. But it, particularly as a performer, it's yeah. like, it's it's a form of expression. But what is that in essence? It's it's telling a story. It's relating to an emotion. And when you are a performer, especially in classical music, and you're staring at, in the faces of people who, who largely don't know what you're saying, you're trying to convey an emotion to them so that they feel something. And you're trying to tell that through the words of someone else, through, through the character that was created, uh, in this case, by Shamiso, and then kind of interpreted by Schumann. And now you as the performer are trying to tell that story to an audience. And to me, and I think to a lot of people, it, it doesn't matter necessarily if that original interpretation or, or the the intended character matches who you are as a person i think as long as you're effective in telling that story that's the point of performing right mm -hmm. yeah 100 <laughs> percent bravo <laughs> <laughs> um to me this all kind of boils down to something that i've kind of latched onto as i don't know a bit of a soapbox uh, and that is the concept of recognizing the humanity in each other 
in our very first recorded episode, I quoted myself <laughs> um, from a gender-bending <laughs> recital series I gave. <laughs> and I'm going to quote myself again. <laughs> um, and I quote, Over the past year, as I've considered the world in which we live, one where terrorist attacks seem like a weekly occurrence, where gun violence claims an appalling number of victims on a regular basis, a world where the cries of refugees go unheard and sexual assault is accepted as the norm, I have been led to analyze how such horrors are possible. How does one human or group of humans do such things to other humans? I believe it has to do with the way in which categories can lead us to develop an us versus them mentality. Tragically, our innate need to categorize things, an instinct rooted in survival, when unchecked can lead us to seeing only the things that make us different from others, whether it be category of race, religion, politics, sexual orientation, or gender. The moment we stop seeing the humanity in each other is the moment it becomes easy to pick up a gun and shoot, or enable hate-based speech or conduct, or even to turn a blind eye to need. My hope is that with this song platform, we can open channels of communication that focus on how we are alike as humans. Perhaps here, we can begin to put aside our differences, starting with notions of gender, and instead focus on the universal human experience. So, with that, uh, I believe we are now going to play for you all our recording of Frauenliebe und Leben from Tyler's DMA recital. Uh, before we do, I do want to mention that Tyler did make some text changes and musical changes to accommodate this being sung from a modern gay male perspective. Sit back, close your eyes, unless you're driving, and enjoy. Thank you. 
Tyler, thanks so much for being here, and thank you for taking me with you on your Frauenliebe und Leben journey. To all our listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you listen to us on Anchor, you can leave us a voicemail to say hi. I'm going to open it up to requests for songs that you want us to cover in future episodes. So, if you have any requests, leave me a voicemail and let me know. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Madrikich. Don't forget to tell your friends about us. Love you guys tons and can't wait till next time. Bye. If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.